in prayer. Lord, once again, we are grateful for this day that we can gather as your people and see you afresh and see who we are in you and rejoice in that reality and that identity. I pray, Lord, that you would think our thoughts now, that your words would be mine, that what you command would be our delight, and Lord, that you would take our hearts and set them on fire with love for you and for your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. Well, when I moved from South Carolina to Pittsburgh, it was a little bit of a culture shock, I have to admit. You know, I grew up in the suburbs of D.C., much like this area. You know, lived in southern Maryland, near the beautiful Chesapeake Bay, just gentle, rolling hills and super. Then we moved to the deep south, you know, you know and where we learned that bless your heart is not something you really want to hear from anybody ever. And then we moved to Pittsburgh, where you reached out the window and you could touch the house next to you, literally. All right, so you really got to know your neighbors really well. And one of my neighbors was a good friend of mine. He was my name, uh, my age. He was a professor at Geneva College in Beaver Falls, and he grew up in Pittsburgh, where when he went to college at Washington and Jefferson College, during the summertime, he got a job at the mill. His dad was a mill worker, and it was good money. It was grunt work, and he was happy to get it. He had more money than you could shake a stick at, you know, by the time school rolled around. It was great pay, and he told me this story. One day, it was a hot, sweltering day in Pittsburgh, and he had a beam he had to move, but there was another beam that was laying over that beam, and one of the bosses told him to move that beam off so he can get to his, that beam he had to move to the other side of the, of the warehouse. His immediate boss said, what are you doing? Who told you to move that? He goes, he did. He goes, who do you work for, him or me? I work for you. Correct. Leave that beam there. We'll call the shop. They'll come get it which is just one of many reasons why the steel industry closed just 10 years later. The inefficiency, you know, it's just, just, just awful. But you don't work for him. You work for me. In a similar way, Paul is calling the Christians here, who are you living for? In this passage here today, I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 6, where we're going to wrap this up. As Paul asks the rhetorical question again, verse 15, What then? Are we to sin because we're not under law but under grace? By no means. All right. Remember, we've been in this series in Romans 5 and 6 all throughout the Epiphany season. We've had a couple interruptions with Bishop John's visit. We had World Mission Sunday with Molly. Wasn't she great? It's great to have Molly with us and just to hear what the Lord's doing in and through the ministry of H2O Church there on campus. But we return back to Romans chapter 6 where we left off with Paul reminding us to know your union in Christ. Your 
past is his past. Your present, his present is your present. Your future is his future. And because of that, we consider that day by day, hour by hour, minute by minute, second by second, because that's who you are in Christ. And because of that, we present ourselves for instruments of righteousness, right? That's where we left off. And so Paul asked that question again, and as he asked that, he then states this argument to number one, that we are called to make sure we acknowledge him as our master. Two, we live under his gracious reign and rule. And three, because there's great benefits of doing so. All right? That's the structure of this passage here that I hope will bless every single soul here this morning. Number one, recognize who your master is. Two, and the breadth of who your master is. Two, recognize that a life lived under his mastery is where true life is found. And three, look, recognize the benefits of living under his mastery. Let's look at this, shall we? Verse 16 is where I am. First, recognize your master. Okay? 16. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin which leads to death, or of obedience which leads to righteousness? Now the first half of chapter 60, verse 16, wasn't as shocking to the original readers as it is to us. Because we hear the word slavery, and it's with the context of our English-American slave trade, which we fought a bloody civil war over. And in some respects, we're still fighting today, right? It's race-based, and it's for life type of slavery. But in the first century, if you were facing a lifelong debt, and you didn't want to be saddled with that debt for the rest of your life, it was not uncommon to give yourself to a landowner, to even approach him and say, hey, you pay off my debt, I'll work for you for five years. And he says, five? How about ten? And you negotiate, you know. Seven years was the typical service, okay, was the typical service. But and therefore you offered yourself as a bond slave, an indentured servant in American terms, quite frankly. I have evidence of my certain members of the Burnham family, my grandmother's family, coming to America from England out of debtor's prison to be indentured servants for seven years so they could be free here in the States. They considered it a good deal. The Africans didn't have a choice. If, you, if the English were just sick of you and you were in jail forever, they just let you go to Georgia. That was okay. So it was seen as a good thing, but you have to realize, though, that person is now your master and in complete control over you. You know? So that wasn't surprising to the original readers at all. But in the second half, when Paul goes to the spiritual realm, it's surprising for the first century reader as well as the 21st century reader when he says in the second half uh, if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves you're slaves of the one to whom you obey either of sin which leads to death or of obedience which leads to righteousness basically what he's saying don't you realize that there are only two kind of people in the world there's people who live under the mastery of jesus christ and those who live under the mastery of the world, the flesh, and the devil. There's no other categories. There's nothing in the middle. 
There's no alternative to these two. And what Paul is doing is basically booting off the ten first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me here. Don't make anything else your God. But you know, in the first commandment, there's really two commandments. You shall not have any idol above me. You must not worship anything else, even if it's a small g God. You will worship Jesus Christ or something else. Now you might ask yourself, how can that be? Well, think about it. Everybody lives for something. To live for something means everybody has something that is the main way they find their significance, meaning, purpose, and to know their lives are worth something. There's something always that's the main way you face the difficulties, trials, dangers of life. Something is always the main way you approach that. And therefore, despite whatever your doctrinal beliefs about religion are, something is the main way you get security and significance. It could be your career. It could be your family. It could be your achievements. It could be entertainment could be personal independence. could be the need to have people dependent upon you. could be political power. could be power in the office place. could be influence, human approval. could be romance, physical attractiveness, being the best parent of the block or in the school. It could be any number of things but what Paul is saying is you're going to live for something there's something in your life that makes you feel like it's meaningful and feeling like you are worthwhile and here's what you don't seem to know whatever that is it's your spiritual master it's controlling you you think it's doing something for you but it's doing something you're you offered yourself to it and it's doing something to you it's a spiritual master, and you're under its control. Well, how do we know that's so? Going back to a couple weeks ago, verse 12, Romans 6, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Don't let sin reign in your mortal body, make you obey its passions. That word passions there is epithumia. Epi, the prefix, hyper overdrive okay this is translated passions or evil desires the old king james said don't don't let sin reign your mortal body to make you obey the lusts of the flesh you know familiar to many of us who grew up on the king james the problem with that obviously is when we think of lust of the flesh we think today only of sex paul's not talking just about sex he's talking about over desire and overpassing and it drives you it's not talking about a desire for bad things it's talking about an inordinate desire for good things and that's how you lose control there are good things in your life you've made into ultimate things and they control your life because if they really are the means of your significance and the means of your security they have you, not you them. And so, let's apply this. Borrowing from Tim Keller, in the book, his book, Counterfeit Gods, offers three tests to discover personally if you've made something 
over God that you've made something an idol. First, your anger. What do you get angry at? If something blocks you getting a good thing, you get angry. But if something blocks you getting an ultimate thing, you blow up. You snap. And afterwards you say, I don't know why I said that. Okay? You get incredibly bitter. At the root of it is a spiritual master controlling you with an over-passion, an over-desire for something. Your anger first. Number two, your fear. If something good in your life occurs and your life is threatened, you get worried. But if something ultimate in your life is threatened, you're paralyzed with fear. You're so anxious you can't think straight. You can't control your anxiety. Is there something that makes you so afraid that you know you're being driven by it? It's because it's your spiritual master. It's enslaving you. It's controlling you. It's directing you. Third, sadness. If you lose something good, you grieve. You might even grieve for a while. It's terrible. It might take months to get over it. But if you lose something ultimate, you're ready to throw yourself over the bridge. There's no meaning in life if I don't have this thing. Now, I know some of you are thinking, wow, this this really starts to make me rethink my life. That's Paul's point. He wants us to rethink our lives. All right? Because perhaps we've set something up as an idol in our life. And that's the reason for everything that happens in our lives. It's the underlying factor in everything we do. So, whether you're a materialist, you just got to get more stuff. You're an individualist, I'm going to do it my way. Whatever it might be, a workaholic, your relationships. You can't imagine life without this person. These things can have you. What Paul is saying is everybody has spiritual masters. No one in the world is free. Until you get rid of that illusion, you'll never make the changes God is calling you to make. So now you can see why the answer to his first question, right, verse 1 and verse 15, God loves to forgive, I love to sin, what a deal. I can live how I, the Christian life how I want and still call myself a Christian. Such a person who says such a thing has absolutely no clue about what a walk with Christ is all about. They've never known their union in Christ. They've never considered it. They've never even presented themselves back to the Lord in any way. That's the first thing Paul is calling us to. And if you're not living unto the Lord Jesus Christ, Paul is saying, and not doing God's will, you're living for something else. So number one, who do you work for? Who are you living for? Who's your master? Recognize that. Second point is to live under the reign of Jesus Christ. Verse 19. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, 
leading to more lawlessness. So now, present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. This is a powerful call to renew and to total commitment to the Lordship of Jesus Christ in our lives, in every aspect. It's really fun when you baptize an infant or a kid comes forward for confirmation or a new member comes forward and they say our covenant together. Their eyes get real big because they realize the importance of what they're saying if I teach it correctly. It's total commitment. It's all in. And that's what Paul is saying. But he knows our natural limitations. Did you catch that? He knows you're limited. (laughs) He, He knows you're not perfect. But the reality is, this righteousness, we're a slave to righteousness, is leading to our sanctification. That's this, this right now. That's in our lives now, Paul is saying. You are being perfected in Jesus Christ even as we don't feel like it. And obedience is not a popular word in today's culture. It's really more of a cultural obscenity, isn't it? And I, like, I liken this obedience to my first dog I ever owned, Major, who was a coon hound. All right? Major, I adopted from the Fairfax County Animal Shelter. If you've seen my Sherlock, you know, Sherlock's about this tall, about this long. Major was this long, about this high. Same dog, same face, same ears, same personality, and he was awesome. You know, we'd go out in the yard, and he'd run these huge figure eights around me, saying, playing, catch me if you can, you know. And I'd chase him, and he just loved it. But if he caught the scent of anything and he couldn't tell the difference between a chocolate chip cookie or a squirrel you know he'd take off and you couldn't catch him he was big he was fast he was strong and he would just go and i would have to chase him for hours till i caught him you know he just followed his nose that's what they're bred to do you know that's why i have bassets you can catch them you know They're small and short, you know. Same dog, really. One day, it was a dry, he loved to go out in the rain. He loved it. But it was a tremendous July thunderstorm in late afternoon. And so it's thundering and lightning, and he's scratching at the door to go out. My old man goes, just let him out, the idiot. Okay, so I let him out. So he's out in the front yard running his figure eight saying, isn't this great? You can just see him running in our front yard. We're standing on the front porch. Well, that's a dumb dog, man. You know, lightning is going out. He's going to get fried. Come on, Major, come in. No, he just keeps running. And all of a sudden, even in a driving rainstorm, he caught the scent of something. And you heard him bawl and took off. Oh, man, you're going to go get him? I'm not going to get him. I'll wait. You know, he'll come back day goes by two days go by three days go by my mom is really ticked at me now you didn't take care of your dog you should have gone after him I go it was lightning you know (sighs) got a call from the Fairfax County Animal Shelter because he had tags he was caught in the equivalent from Avon Lake to the border of Lakewood and Rocky River he, he, he went over these busy streets. How he didn't get hit by a car, I have no idea. He had a sixth sense to dodge cars. Amazing. 
And my mom and dad sat me down and said, you're going to take better care of your dog. You're going to have to walk him. Well, I had been with this dog long enough that a walk isn't going to get the energy out of him. But my brother had a skateboard. All right? And so if I loosened his collar and I put it down his neck into his chest, I would just hop on the skateboard and say, get up! And he would go. And he would pull me. And in 15 minutes, he was done. It was great. And he loved it! He absolutely loved it. He would bring his leash to me, my leash, his leash to me, every day and say, let's go, let's go. And we would literally time it. You know, I had a friend, drove his car next to me. I'm driving down the street, and it was, he's going 35 miles an hour, you know. And when another car was coming down the street, I'd just let go and bail out, and Major would say, what, what, what's the matter? He'd pull over. It was amazing. But he flourished in obedience to the leash. Well, you would have thought that he would be better just following his nose. He was begging me to carry me on the chariot that he would just pull me down the street on. That's what life in Christ is like for us, my friends. We think it's slavery. It is slavery, Paul is saying. But it's slavery to a gracious master. Did you hear Jesus' words? You will know the truth and the truth will set you in bondage? No. Free! Free! He loved it. And we, following Jesus, will love it as well. You see, true freedom is freedom to follow Jesus. It's not freedom from having fun. It's like being playing basketball in the inner city on those big playgrounds they have downtown. You know, they got fences around them. Why? Because, you know, if you didn't have a fence around it, the ball would roll out into the street and the kid could get hurt. But on the playground, you got lots of room to be creative and to have fun and enjoy the freedom that's found within it. That's what we're called to, my friends. A life of obedience and freedom to follow Jesus Christ. And as Samuel said, behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. 1 Samuel 22. So number one, who's your master? Recognize who your master is. Number two, look at the freedom that we have in following this master. And last, look at the glorious benefits that are given to you by a relationship with this master. So Paul concludes this argument and speaks about these benefits. In verse 21, but what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you're now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification in its end, eternal life. See, our past lives brought us only shame and death. But our enslavement to Jesus Christ brings not only freedom from sin, but sanctification in the present and eternal life in the future. The practical experience of growing to be more like our master Jesus. And the experience of knowing we possess this now. Nothing can take it from you. And so verse 23 gives us this triumphant summation, which many of us have memorized, is, for the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
See, the old slave master pays wages. Death. Death works now in the lives of those who are under his pay. And one day, he will make a final payment. But the new slave master, our new boss, our king, living under his reign and rule, he doesn't pay wages. You can't earn it. (laughs) Right? It's all of grace. Eternal life is not merely in the future. It's in the present and exists in us and for us today. There's an inheritance waiting for us. But even now, there's a bud that will fully blossom when we will see him face to face. Paul began with that rhetorical question in verse 1 and verse 15. What then? Are we to sin because we're not under law but under grace? By no means. For a reason. He knows us. Because he knows himself. And the abiding truth is because we're slaves of Christ, we have been called to profound obedience and have become the recipients of a glorious benefit that is ours as his slaves. The first century Bishop Irenaeus said, the glory of God is a man fully alive. Our spiritual life comes, of course, through our union with Christ. Every Tuesday in morning prayer, my friends, we pray a prayer for peace. If you look in your prayer book, you'll see it. The the collect for peace in morning prayer. To know you, Lord Jesus Christ, is eternal life, and to serve you is perfect freedom. That's what we have. Economic advisor John Kenneth Galbraith was uh, to President Johnson in the 60s, told the story of a devoted life of his faithful housekeeper, Emily Wilson. It had been a wearying day, and he had asked Emily to hold all the telephone calls while he went upstairs and took a nap. Shortly thereafter, the phone rang, and it was President Lyndon Johnson on the phone, calling from the White House. And he says rather, you know, abruptly and caustically, he said, get me Ken Galbraith. This is Lyndon Johnson. And she said, he's sleeping, Mr. President. He told me not to disturb him. Well, wake him up. I want to talk to him. She said, no, Mr. President, I work for him, not you. When Galbraith called the president back, Johnson could scarcely control his pleasure. He said, you tell that woman I want her here in the White House. (laughs) Who do you work for? Who do you live for? Live in the abundant life that he has for you in Jesus and the benefits, recognize the benefits you have now and in the future because it's going to get better from here, my friends. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the hope that we have in you. We thank you that we can live under your mastery, Lord Jesus, and it's true freedom, and that your yoke is easy, your burden is light, and we work for you. We live for you, and we pray no matter where we are in our journey, 
you would convict us where we tend to go back to the, under the old master. And may we live under your gracious rule always. For in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.